Hey again, everyone. I'm Joan Obra. And I'm Ralph Gaston. And you are listening to Catch Me Up to Speed, the podcast by two reporters turned coffee farmers. Now that we're no longer in the newsroom, we help you deconstruct the news like a journalist and give you the historical context that's missing from the daily grind. So you guys may remember that last episode, we kicked off a discussion about American foreign policy. We walked you through the crisis of aid trucks burned on the border between Venezuela and Colombia in 2019. And we deliberately chose this example because it was a good introduction to information gathering. This event was recent enough for everyone to remember it, but also far enough in the past that the dust had settled. So it's easier to spot patterns that led up to that crisis. Today, we're continuing to explore more patterns in American foreign policy as they apply to Haiti and Cuba. We saw the assassination last month of Haiti's president, Jovenel Moïse, and the ongoing power struggle to control the country. And shortly after Moïse was killed, protests throughout Cuba inspired calls for intervention from U.S. politicians and talking heads in our major news media. So these situations are what Ralph calls the information fog of war, when so much info is coming at us that it's hard to keep up. And what do you do with all of it? Well, you know, to me, the solution is not to try to keep up. It's to look for longstanding patterns in the U.S. military and economic response and use those to analyze what comes next. And in order to do that, you have to know these countries' histories. And the big point to remember with Haiti is that since its inception as an independent country, it's never been allowed to determine its own fate. So let's do a quick recap. Back in the 1700s, this island was known as Saint-Domingue, a French colony that was known for one of the most brutal forms of slavery at the time. The enslaved people liberated themselves in the Haitian Revolution of 1804. And, you know, you guys... A slave revolt that's resulting in a new country? This is something that was really unheard of. And for their success, Haiti paid dearly. You may remember that slavery had not yet ended in the United States, so the U.S. was, well, shall we say, not keen on having an independent, thriving country of former slaves that could inspire revolts on its own soil. So when France sought reparations from Haiti for all of the quote-unquote property that the French lost in the Haitian Revolution, the United States was there to help France collect. And just to be clear, a large part of this property referred to the value of the formerly enslaved people. So the sum of these reparations, 150 million francs in 1825, was later reduced to 90 million francs in 1838. This was still an impossible amount that forced Haiti into loans from French banks and Citibank, and it took until 1947 to pay off. That's more than a century. And since then, there have been calls for France to pay back this money. As Forbes pointed out in a 2017 article, this sum was the equivalent of $21 billion at the time of the Forbes publication. And I know I'm glossing over a lot of this stuff, guys, because Haiti's history is incredibly long and detailed. So if you want to read more about this, we're going to go ahead and post a link in the show notes. It was bad enough that the Haitians had been forced to give free labor as slaves and pay the French an exorbitant sum on top of that. But it's the United States who's loomed the largest in interfering with Haitian sovereignty for the last century. This all started in 1914 
when President Woodrow Wilson sent in a detachment of Marines to take half a million dollars from the Banque Nationale in Port-au-Prince. This was a key part of a multi-year effort by National Citibank, which is now known as Citibank or Citigroup. They were trying to take over Haiti's national banking system. So after this move in 1914, National Citibank had control over Haiti's finances. They literally had their money. A year later, turmoil that surrounded this event led to the assassination of Haiti's president, Guillaume Sam. What followed was a full-on U.S. occupation that lasted almost 20 years. Now, you remember back in episode four when we mentioned Major General Smedley Butler? He was the general who had been approached by big business interests to participate in the coup against Franklin Roosevelt. Well, in that episode, we recommended that you read Butler's 1935 book titled War is a Racket. That was all about his time in the U.S. Marines. He looked back with regret on the long career spent, in his opinion, fighting to expand America's empire and business interests. And here's a quote we're going to play from Butler's speech as it was read in the 12-part documentary done by Oliver Stone and Peter Kuznick called The Untold History of the United States. I spent 33 years and four months in active military service as a member of this country's most agile military force, the Marine Corps. I served in all commission ranks from second lieutenant to major general. And during that period, I spent most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street, and for the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. Like all the members of the military profession, I never had a thought of my own until I left the service. I helped make Mexico, especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. This is when Smedley Butler served in Haiti, during which time the occupying force rewrote the Haitian constitution, allowing foreign companies to own great portions of land in that country. And they also reimposed forced unpaid labor that was performed at gunpoint to build a road system that helped ensure military and economic control. Not only that, but they redrew the border between Haiti and the neighboring Dominican Republic, which they also occupied in the early 1920s. They reconstituted the new armed forces with American officers at the top of the chain of command, and they brutally put down any resistance to their occupation. Even after leaving Haiti in 1934, Citibank was still getting paid on their debt until 1947. So since that time, the U.S. involvement in Haitian affairs has been constant and detrimental to their success. The U.S. government reluctantly backed Papadoc Duvalier's regime in the early Cold War era, and they were much bigger backers of his son, Baby Doc Duvalier, who took over after Papa Doc's death in 1971. The Haitian people overthrew Baby Doc in 1986, and then in 1990, they finally had free elections of their own. So they elected Jean-Bertrand d'Aristide, who was then quickly ousted by a coup from his own officers. Some of these officers had ties to U.S. military and intelligence. Aristide came back to the presidency in 1994, and for the following decade, the presidency bounced between Aristide and René Préval. But Aristide's second term as president was cut short, again with backing from the United States. And unfortunately, this is a familiar story. 
the Bush administration sent in Marines as part of an international force to take control of Haiti in 2004. A peacekeeping force took over soon after that, and after a devastating cholera outbreak, which was likely brought by the UN troops themselves, as well as a devastating earthquake in 2010, the UN oversaw elections later that year in which Michel Martelly was elected with help from the US State Department. The UN troops were finally gone by 2016, which led to the next round of elections, and that, of course, led to Jovenel Moise's contested election victory. Now understand, there were four years of protests around the Moise presidency. They started in 2018 due to fuel shortages. Moise backed the Trump administration's economic sanctions against Venezuela, who was then Haiti's main trading partner for fuel. Additionally, many of Moise's officials were suspected of embezzling funds from the Petrocaribe program, in which the Venezuelan government had essentially granted funds to Haiti so the infrastructure could be improved. The protests intensified earlier this year because Moise had canceled elections, which effectively dissolved the Haitian parliament and was ruling by decree. Despite calls for an election this year, Moise claimed he had a year remaining in his presidency and would not leave office. The unrest was constantly growing and for the most part was not reported in the United States media. Haiti was largely ignored until the assassination of Moise on July 7th. The very next day, I predicted that the call would immediately come for a peacekeeping mission to be led by the United Nations, backed by American troops, and now we're back as an occupying force. Neither of us expected to see that in the media for two to three days. Pretty much on the same day, July 7th, there was an op-ed in the Washington Post calling for direct U.S. occupation. Now, if you're one of our U.S.-based listeners, a lot of what we just described may be news to you. And that's no surprise, because much of the U.S. involvement in Haiti's affairs has not been explored in depth in U.S. media. You actually learn more by paying attention to Haitian news. One of the reasons why we're always telling you folks to, you know, (laughs) read international news, right? And a big source for the, the Haitian news is WikiLeaks. Now, in case you don't know exactly what WikiLeaks is, it bills itself as a library for, quote, large data sets of censored or otherwise restricted official materials involving war, spying, and corruption, end quote. And by its own account, WikiLeaks has so far published more than 10 million documents and associated analyses. So here's an example, and this one actually comes from a U.S. publication. A Nation article from 2011 featured a WikiLeaks document that showcased the U.S. State Department siding with big businesses like Haynes and Levi's in a labor dispute. You see, the Haitian government had mandated a minimum wage of $5 per day, but big textile companies wanted to pay workers less. The U.S. government pressured the Haitian government to adjust that labor law. And in that article, the nation explained that this info came from a trove of 1,918 cables that WikiLeaks made available to the Haitian weekly newspaper, Haiti Liberté. As part of a collaboration with Haiti Liberté, the nation is publishing English-language stories based on those cables. 
And you know, what's going on with WikiLeaks itself is another news story that's not getting much coverage in the United States. I am specifically talking about the U.S. government's efforts to prosecute WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. The United States is still working to have Assange extradited from Great Britain so they can charge him with a violation of the Espionage Act. Here's a clip from Amy Goodman's Democracy Now! broadcast of June 28th with more detail. Assange faces up to 175 years in prison if brought to the United States, where he's been indicted for violations of the Espionage Act related to the publication of classified documents, which many say expose U.S. war crimes. Now one of the main witnesses in that extradition case has come forward to admit he made false claims against Assange for exchange in immunity from prosecution. The revelation came in an interview with the convicted Icelandic hacker Sigi Thordarson for a detailed article published by the Icelandic biweekly Stunden. It suggests the U.S. Justice Department collaborated with Thordarson to generate the indictment for Assange that was submitted to the British courts. So guys, this is definitely newsworthy. We saw this news mentioned in the Washington Post on July 7th, right? I mean, Amy Goodman had it on June 28th, Mm -hmm. and we didn't see it mentioned in the Post until July 7th. And at that time, most of the major news media outlets hadn't reported on it yet. So as far as major news goes, or major news outlets goes, the Washington Post was one of the first, if not the first. Now, this was already a controversial case. Several media organizations had already come out opposing Assange's extradition to the United States, because if he were extradited and convicted here, it would set a very damaging precedent for the federal government to imprison journalists and potentially seize media outlets just for being given and publishing classified documents. This is exactly the kind of activity that Daniel Ellsberg and the major news media were lauded for in the leaking and publication of the Pentagon Papers. Now remember, Those papers were like a diary of everything the U.S. had done in Vietnam since World War II until 1968. Yeah, Ellsberg is the reason that this study got into the press. He's the one who leaked the documents to Neil Sheehan of the New York Times. And then once the Nixon administration used the courts to stop the Times from publishing excerpts from the Pentagon Papers, Ellsberg then leaked to other media sources. And he ultimately got a copy to former Alaska Senator Mike Gravel, who read them into the Senate record on the Senate floor. So the Pentagon Papers are really well-known history at this point, but what's pretty remarkable is that Ellsberg has even more top-secret information to release. Yeah, you know, he's been trying, without much success so far, to get some media attention for leaking another top-secret study. Now, this one is of United States war plans, plans that prominently include the use of nuclear weapons to deter a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Now, the report was also done at the Rand Corporation back in 1958, and they've been top secret all these years until Ellsberg leaked them once again to the New York Times just this May. So why did Ellsberg leak the documents? Well, for two reasons. First, he was concerned that this was still U.S. military policy And no one in the government or the media seemed to be questioning why. And that's something sobering to think about as political tensions rise with China as they are right now. Or 
It might have something to do with Ellsberg's other stated reason for leaking the documents. He wants to establish a legal framework to challenge the constitutionality of the Espionage Act itself. And this may be why, for all of his notoriety, Ellsberg's motivation and open desire to be prosecuted for the leak is not getting much coverage in the mainstream media. So our last two episodes, we've been highlighting our fifth news tip, that it's important to know the news they don't tell you. But it's one of our earlier tips to consider all sources carefully. That's also very important when you're analyzing foreign policy from Venezuela to Haiti to Assange and more. For example, CNN's early response to the assassination of President Moise included an op-ed from a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is a D.C. area think tank whose stated purpose is to define the future of national security. Also, the Miami Herald covers a large Haitian immigrant community, and they have an op-ed now calling for the U.S. to take the lead in Haiti. Now, this came out last month after Moise's assassination. There's also a report in the New York Times in late July about jockeying for influence and control of Haiti that was coming from lobbyists in Washington, D.C. How many perspectives from these types of groups will dominate the major news media for the next few weeks or few months? Did they really tell the story of the hopes and aspirations and anxieties of the Haitian people? Or is this more about a view from the foreign policy establishment of the United States, which, as we've discussed, has cast a long shadow on Haiti's political freedom almost since the country's inception? Meanwhile, you can get some different coverage from other news sources that don't live in the heart of the Ad Fontes chart. The Gray Zone, who we did mention in our last podcast, has had some consistent coverage of Haiti before Moise's assassination. And while CNN is on the Ad Fontes chart, former CNN political contributor and longtime newsman Roland Martin, his program, Roland Martin Unfiltered, is not on that chart. Maybe it should be. Roland Martin has had the Haitian ambassador to the U.S. on his show on more than one occasion prior to the current unrest. We can see how different the coverage of Haiti is when comparing it to that of Cuba, the neighboring country to the West. Remember how we said that Haiti was largely ignored in the U.S. media until Moise's assassination? Well, days after Moise was killed, hashtag SOS Cuba became the big international issue, with protests on the island nation springing up on July 11th. This immediately pushed Haiti out of the news in favor of calls for regime change in Cuba. A day after the Cuba protests started, City of Miami Mayor Frank Suarez was calling for a U.S.-led international intervention to remove the Cuban government. On July 13th, New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez backed forceful action, saying on MSNBC that the Biden administration had to, quote-unquote, challenge the regime in Cuba. And recently, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis also spoke on the subject, holding a press conference with Congressman Kevin McCarthy to push for Biden's administration to, quote, show leadership, end quote, in dealing with Cuba. Now, the difference in news coverage and, frankly, probably also the difference in what you're hearing from politicians here has as much to do with U.S. politics as it does with history. I mean, the Cuban-American vote is highly coveted that vote that's based in South Florida. 
But you know, the two island nations are seen differently in the historical lens here as well. Cuba, like Haiti, is a Caribbean country with a long history of U.S. interference. But the U.S. has not had direct influence on that island's politics since 1959. Cuba, of course, was long under the control of Spain, and it was liberated, so to speak, as part of the Spanish-American War from 1899 to 1900. So after the Spanish-American War, of course, the U.S. retained their control of politics on that island, just like they did Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Guam, the Philippines. And what followed was several decades of unrest and domination by strongmen and dictators, people like Fulgencio Batista, Carlos Prio Sarkas, Batista again. Then Castro and the revolution hit in 1959. What followed soon after that were several attempts at covert and overt military operations, like the Bay of Pigs, to try to oust Castro from power. None of them succeeded. The assassination attempts against Castro were actually admitted by the CIA in the 1970s. And, you know, Cuba did assist with other proxy wars that happened internationally. Angola is a prime example of this. Because of this, and all during this time, there was an embargo from the United States against Cuba. This started in 1962. It went pretty much unabated until 2015, when President Obama relaxed restrictions with Cuba for the first time. However, the Trump administration reinstated the embargo and actually made it stiffer during Trump's term in office. Then the embargo is seen as a blockade by those who oppose it, obviously in Cuba and in some other circles internationally. The embargo is also a big reason for the lack of supplies in Cuba because those U.S. sanctions they affect how other countries trade with Cuba as well. Now, when President Biden was on the campaign trail back in 2020, he pledged to roll back the Trump-era sanctions against Cuba. But the past few weeks of media and pressure have changed his political calculus because his administration now leans towards adding sanctions instead of rolling them back. Understand, the supply shortages in Cuba are due in part to the sanctions that are already in place, so it seems logical that more sanctions would just intensify the supply issues, which would then ratchet up the tensions in Cuba. You know, there's a sad symmetry to how these issues are discussed here in America. Now, back in the Cold War era, there was a discussion that was centered around the Soviet Union having an influential partner in the Western Hemisphere, and that, of course, being Cuba. In the current day, we're having the same discussion about Cuba, but now the influential partner is China. Haiti, it's much the same. In our brief tour of the history of the 1915 U.S. invasion, we only scratched the surface. We did not discuss the resistance led by Charlemagne Peralt or his assassination. We haven't fully discussed the long-term effects of the U.S. creation of the Haitian gendarmes, their destruction of the previously created Haitian army, the one made by the Haitians themselves. You know, Haitian human rights activist Lovinsky Pierre Antoine had a quote from 2007 in which he said, The U.S. occupation of 1915 and the U.S. occupation of 2004 are two sides of the same coin. Now, will we say this again about what happens in the wake of President Moise's assassination? Or is it possible to change the way that we see Haiti 
and with that, how we seek to change our country's century plus of intervention in their national affairs. Remember how we started this podcast with Smedley Butler? He mentioned how, in his opinion, war was a racket, and how he felt that instead of making countries open for democracy, he was really opening them up for business interests. A century later, it seems much the same. And that's why what we're talking about here is so important. When you know the history, when you know how to find the news that's not shown, it allows you to look at what can be done differently. What would Haiti's future look like if it were determined solely by Haitians? Would the relaxation of diplomatic tensions between the U.S. and Cuba be better than intensified sanctions? You know, these are questions you'll have to answer for yourselves. What we're introducing you to is a more extensive way of gathering information so you can gain a better understanding of U.S. foreign policy. And in a future episode, we're going to go even deeper. We're going to discuss two times in history that had a very different approach to foreign policy. FDR's Good Neighbor Policy and JFK's Alliance for Progress. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a question about this episode or any of our past episodes, please let us know. Drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com and tell us something like, Hey Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on A, B, or C? And please like and subscribe to the podcast, which you can now find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more of your favorite platforms. And remember to give us a follow, leave a comment, leave a review. We want to hear from you. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CatchMeUpToSpeed. And as always, thanks for spending time with us today. Talk to you again soon.